Well, hello everyone and welcome to worship. Uh, I was gone last weekend, so it's good to be back. Good to see so many familiar faces and good to see faces I'm not familiar with yet. If you're new to Hope, if you're checking this place out, we just want you to know uh, we built this church on rock and roll. No. Uh, We built built this church to be a safe place for people to ask big questions, important questions about life and faith. And so we're glad that you are here. Uh, We hope that you stick around and check things out. Uh, If if this is your first week, you couldn't have picked a better weekend to be here. We're starting a new message series that's really going to give you a good idea of who we are as a church and, and what do we teach, what do we believe as a church. This message series is called Here We Stand. And it's going to take us uh, well into the fall, right up to that religious holiday called Halloween where we worship candy. Halloween actually is a religious holiday. Uh, All Hallows' Eve is where it gets its name. All Hallows' Eve, which is the evening before All Hallows' Day or All Saints' Day, a day in the church calendar for centuries that uh, the church has set apart to remember uh, the life and the faith of ordinary men and women that God used to do extraordinary things because of their faith in Jesus. And God used these men and women to make the world a better place. So it was All Hallows' Eve 500 years ago that a young Roman Catholic priest named Martin Luther in Germany took a look at the world around him, took a look at the church that he was a part of, and came to the conclusion, there's something wrong here. And Luther decided he was going to do something about it. Uh, He nailed, uh, tacked 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. And as you can imagine, well, theses, they're like questions, they're complaints or observations or criticisms. And as you can imagine, the people in positions of power did not particularly like the way that Luther was questioning uh, what they were doing and calling them out on their corruption. And remember, in Luther's day, there was no separation of church and state. It was called the Holy Roman Empire. And the Holy Roman Emperor was a guy named Charles V. He was the king of Spain, but also the emperor of this whole thing. And he actually presided over a trial where they were deciding, should Martin Luther be kicked out of the church because of what he was asking in those 95 theses? And at the end of the trial, uh, they, Luther testified. They wanted him to recant, and he said, I'm not going to do it. Here I stand, he said, I can do no other. And so he was declared by both the Pope and the Emperor to be a heretic. They ordered that his writings be burned. Uh, He became an outlaw, and if he had been captured and arrested, he could have been killed. But he had powerful people who were protecting him. And so uh, for the next 30, 40 years or so, Martin Luther continued to hide out, continued to write and lead and influence, and he's credited with starting the Protestant Reformation. It's going to be the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this October. So this series is going to lead us up to that, and we're going to talk about what it is that we believe. Why was Luther and his life and this Reformation that he started such an important event in modern history? But remember, it started with Luther taking a look at his world and taking a look at the church and coming to the conclusion, something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. How are things going in your neck of the woods? When you look at your life or when you look at the world that you are a part of, is there anything going on that causes you to say something's wrong here? That movie clip we watched at the beginning of the message, the movie is A School of Rock, and Jack Black plays 
a guy named Dewey Finn, and everything's going wrong in, in Dewey Finn's world. He started a rock band, but the movie begins, he gets kicked out of the band. The people that he asked to be in the band with him, they say, you are kind of an embarrassment as a musician. We don't want you in the band that you started anymore. And he's getting behind on his uh, rent payments. His best friend, his roommate, doesn't trust him anymore for good reason. Dewey Finn pretends to be his roommate, Ned Schneebly, and he gets a job as a substitute teacher at this prep school. And things just kind of go from bad to worse. And so when things are wrong in Dewey Finn's life, how do you suppose he responds? Well, take a look. When there is something wrong in Dewey Finn's world, the conclusion he comes to is just give up. When there's something wrong in Martin Luther's world, the conclusion he comes to is, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make things right, even if it costs me. How about you? When things aren't going the way that you want them to go, when things are wrong in your world, whether it's relationally or financially in terms of your job or maybe in terms of your health, or maybe it's a behavior that just you keep doing the wrong thing over and over again, how do you respond? Do you disengage? Do you pretend it away or ignore it? Do you uh, justify your behavior? Do you think, well, I'm just powerless to do anything about it anyway? Do you give up? Or do you engage? Do you get active? Do you decide, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make things right, even if it costs me? Wasn't here last week. I was on a road trip out to the East Coast with my wife and our three oldest kids, and we spent most of our time in Washington, D.C. Just an absolutely great city to visit, especially if you like walking 10 or 12 miles every day. But they have a lot of good restaurants, so it was fine. And we got to see all kinds of really cool museums and all of these sort of memorials and monuments to the great history of this country. Go to Arlington Cemetery and see the changing of the guard and the Lincoln Memorial and Ford's Theater and all sorts of things. The the place that was probably the most meaningful to me was this museum we went to called the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And it was different than any other museum that we went into. As soon as you entered the doors, everyone was just silent out of respect for what we were about to take a look at. And so they gave you an identification card when you first got in. And on the inside of that, there was a picture in the name of a Jewish person who lived in Europe during the Holocaust. And as you made your way through the museum, they would tell you when to turn the page and you would read about their family, you would read about their occupation, you would read about you know, how the Holocaust impacted them. And by the time you got to the end of the museum, you'd get to the last page of that identification card and you would find out if this person had survived the Holocaust or were they one of the six million Jews who had been killed. So exhibit after exhibit after exhibit, just kind of going through the history of everything that was going on. And there were different places where you could go in and you could watch short films that would talk about the history as well. One of the films we watched was called The Roots of Anti-Semitism, and it was really uncomfortable to watch because they did an honest portrayal of the roots of anti-Semitism, so they talked about the role Christianity has to play in it. That from the very beginning of church history, there have always been Christians in every generation who blame the Jews for the death of Jesus and use that as justification for mistreating Jewish people. One of the Christians who viewed Jews that way was the great reformer Martin Luther, for whom we get our name, Lutheran Church of Hope. 
Later on in his life, about 30 years after the start of the Reformation, Luther wrote a paper called The Jews and Their Lies. And in that paper, he called for the Christians of Germany to burn down Jewish synagogues. He called for them to burn the homes of Jewish men and women. He called for the government to pass laws where they would burn uh, Jewish religious thoughts and and writings and and scriptures. They would pass laws where uh, the German government could come in and they could take money and silver and gold away from the Jewish people and force them to do hard labor. And 400 years later, Adolf Hitler, reading this paper written by Martin Luther, decided he's got a good idea. So we left that film. Luckily, at the end of it, they said in 1994, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, formally rejected Luther's later writings and what he said about the Jews, that that was not Christian. Then there were these exhibits about uh, the segregation that was happening in Germany as the Nazis were growing in power. And they wanted to keep the purity of the Aryan race, and so they wanted to make sure the Jews were, were segregated, were separated from everyone else. And their inspiration, the influence behind the laws that they passed, was the Jim Crow South in America in the early 1900s. And so you walked through that museum, and you just kind of solemnly shook your head and wondered and questioned, how can it be that a group of people can get to a place where they treat another group of people this way? And then Charlottesville happened, and it was another reminder, something's wrong here. Something's terribly wrong. And so just to be clear, as we start this message series called Here We Stand, based on the words of Martin Luther, we're not doing this message series leading up to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation because we're Lutherans and we worship Martin Luther. We're doing this series because in our generation, just like in Luther's generation, we need a Reformation. In our generation, just like in Luther's generation, just like in every generation, there are wrongs that need to be righted. And no, Luther did not get everything right. But guess what? Nobody ever has. And Luther got a lot of things right. And we're going to talk about some of them. One of the things that Luther got right, he was really good at calling the church back to what is it that we actually stand on? Or what, what have we been standing on that we really should not be standing on? We don't stand on the goodness of our hearts because guess what? Our hearts actually aren't that good. We don't stand on our ability to do the right thing because more often than not, we do not do the right thing. We don't stand on our bank account or our body mass index or our brains. We don't stand on our church attendance or how well we know the Bible or how well we can pray. We don't stand on the greatness of our faith. We stand on the greatness of our God. Romans chapter 3, our Bible reading for today, the Apostle Paul is reminding us of the greatness of our God. In verse 22, he says this, Paul, we are made right with God by, practice, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Something's wrong. Something's terribly wrong. In our generation, in Luther's generation, in every generation, what's wrong is we're not right with God. And it's really easy for us to sit back and point our fingers and say white supremacists are not right with God and neo-Nazis are not right with God and people who drive cars into crowded streets filled with people, whether it's in Charlottesville or Barcelona, Spain, they're not right with God and people who fly airplanes into skyscrapers in the name of their false God, they're not right with God and men who abuse women are not right with God. Really, anyone who is tempted to sin in a way that I'm not tempted to sin, they're not right with God. But that's not what Paul is saying. 
in Romans 3. Paul's not saying, hey, let me tell you what's wrong with everybody else. We, go back, go back. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. There's something wrong with Paul, he's saying. There's something wrong with Luther. There's something wrong with me. Something wrong with all of us. And then in the next verse, Paul tells us what that is. Let's read this verse out loud together. Romans 3, 23. It's on the screen. Read it with me. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Something's gone wrong. It's sin. We all, it's not like sin happens to us. We sin. And it makes things wrong in our lives and in this world. And God has been at work since the creation of human beings trying to make things right. And scripture writers and theologians have all sorts of ways of helping us try to understand how is it exactly that we are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's all kinds of language around this. Sometimes we talk about it in terms of penalty. We all have sinned and there's a penalty for our sin. It's death. But Jesus comes along. Jesus lives a sin-free life, a perfect life. Jesus doesn't deserve the punishment of death, the penalty of death. But he goes to the cross and he dies anyways for us so that we do not have to. And that's how Jesus makes us right with God. Sometimes we talk about it in legal terms. Like God is a judge and we are guilty. Our sin makes us guilty. And because God is a God who cares about justice... There has to be a punishment for our sin, for our guilt. But Jesus comes along and Jesus pronounces us innocent even though we're guilty. And that's what makes us right with God. Sometimes we talk about it in economic terms. We all have sinned and because of my sin, now I owe God. I have a debt to pay. And it's such a huge debt, I'm incapable of paying that debt. So Jesus comes along and Jesus repays the debt for me. Jesus forgives the debt. And that's how Jesus makes me right with God, makes us right with God. And you can find biblical passages that use that imagery and the, that kind of language and, and those metaphors. And it can be a really helpful and kind of a starting place for us as we try to understand who God is and how does this whole faith thing work. But if all we have are those sorts of terms, penalty and legality and economics... We miss out on the primary way that the biblical writers talk about how God goes about making things right. And, and this is what we have to understand. Being made right with God is a relational reality. Being made right with God is a relational... There's a reason the biblical writers don't call us God's clients, like God is our lawyer or our social worker, and that's how God's going about making things right. What do the biblical writers say over and over? We are God's children. Like God is our Heavenly Father because it's a relational reality. Th think about the relationships that you are a part of in your life. Particularly think about relationships that you've been in for a long time. You know, don't you? You know when something's wrong in your relationship. You may not know why things are wrong, but you know when things are wrong. When you get the cold shoulder. 
When you get the clenched jaw and the crossed arms, you may not know, what did I do? What happened? But you know something's wrong. Parents think about children when things are wrong in your relationship with them. You know, even if you don't know why or what you did, they slam the door to their room and they hide out or they go running into the couch and cover themselves up with their cushions. You know something's wrong. Similar reality in our relationship with God. The first relationship the Bible talks about with God and human beings is God and Adam and Eve. And everything's great, everything's just right, nothing's wrong, it's perfect. Garden of Eden, it's paradise. And then things go wrong. And after they sin, after they break God's commands, after they break God's trust, here's how the biblical writer records it. Genesis 3, verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. In other words, when something goes wrong in Adam and Eve's relationship with God, their instinctual response is to hide from God. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed of what they've done. Maybe they're fearful of consequences. And so they hide. It's really important for us to notice at this point in the story, God does not hide. How does God respond? Verse 9 The Lord God called to the man, where are you? God asks, where are you? Where are you? God doesn't hide. God calls out to Adam and Eve. God pursues Adam and Eve. Something's wrong in the relationship between God and humanity, and God immediately goes to work trying to fix or make right what has gone wrong. So as we start this message series... Maybe a really good question for us to start off with is this question. Where are you? That God is calling out to you. God is pursuing you. God wants a relationship with you. Where are you? Are you hiding from God? We all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. And just like Adam and Eve, for a lot of us, our instinctual response is to hide. Let's make it as personal as we can. I have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. And I think early on in my preaching ministry, this would be where I'd now go through a list of possible sins that maybe you are bumping up against and let you kind of pick because like, you need the pastor to point out to you because you're not aware of the ways in which you're sinning. I, I don't do that anymore. You know. You know exactly what goes into that blank, don't you? I have blank and fallen short of God's glorious standard. What goes in the blank for you and and whatever it is that you fill in that blank with, how is it impacting your relationship with God? Some of you find yourself convinced that whatever it is that you have done, however it is you have sinned, it's causing you to fall farther than anyone else has ever fallen. So far that you're out of the reach of God's grace. And so I just want to remind you right up front, nothing could be further from the truth. No matter what your past is, no matter what you've done, no matter how you have failed, God's grace is available for you. Yes, we all have sinned, every single one of us. We fall short. But Paul goes right to work talking about grace in the very next verse, Romans 3, verse 24. God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus. Remember the first time grace became real for you? The first time you had that experience of just being kind of overwhelmed 
with the reality of your sin and at the same time being overwhelmed with the reality of God's grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. When, when you were at this place where you understood you were unable, you were incapable of making things right. That the only thing that could make things right was God's grace. And you experienced that. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But what happens the longer we follow after Jesus, one of the ways we hide is by denying grace. And, and we start to become convinced that no, 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 grace isn't what makes me right with God. Trying harder, being a better Christian, doing more, doing better, that's what makes me right with God. The problem with that, how good is good enough? How obedient is obedient enough? How perfect is perfect enough? I don't know about you, I am far from perfect. And so were the apostles, Peter, Paul, far from perfect. Martin Luther, far from perfect. But they were all, and we are all, loved with a perfect love. And we're all saved by God's amazing grace. Because of what Jesus does for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Paul goes on and writes, People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. I don't know what you think of when you think of the cross. I don't know how you think about what actually happens there. A lot of us think of it in terms of some sort of transaction that takes place. A legal transaction or an economic transaction that somehow makes us right with God. I want you to understand what's going on on the cross is more than that. And it's more than justice being served. It's more than the wrath of God being satisfied. What's happening on the cross is God's love is being put on display perfectly. God's love for all people, God's love for the whole world, every tribe, every tongue. It's perfectly on display on the cross of Jesus Christ. Our theme this year at Hope is to know and to be known. It comes at the end of Paul's love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. We want to know God more. We want to know one another and be known by one another more. And in a biblical sense, knowing and loving are are synonymous. This is all about the great commandment. How do I love God and love my neighbor as I love myself? And we want to be moving in that direction. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but over the last several months I've started as as I pray during the uh, baptisms that we do here, I've been praying this prayer that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3. He prays that the people of Ephesus would know how high and wide and deep and long God's love is for them, but he goes on to say, even though it's impossible to comprehend fully, that we will never understand the depths of God's love for us in a complete way. But the hope, the goal is that more and more, as we follow after Jesus, we will know that love more tomorrow than we do today, more in five years than we do today. And that as we know God's love, that's what changes us, that's what fixes things, that's what makes us right with God, that's what makes things better in the world. So we have a ministry at Hope, a healing prayer ministry. It's been going on for several years now. When we first started this ministry, the pastors of Hope were encouraged to sign up for a session of it so that when we're encouraging the people of our congregation to sign up for a session of healing prayer and they say, well, what is it? We can tell them that we're not going to expect you to do something we're not willing to do ourselves. And so when I heard about this, I thought, I'm glad that we're at a church that offers healing prayer, but... I'm not going to sign up for that. Are you kidding me? I mean, 
I've got a seminary degree, and I go to a counselor on a regular basis, and I write sermons and preach sermons, and I don't need healing prayer. But everybody else certainly does. So I stalled for several years, and then a couple months ago, I signed up for a session of healing prayer. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful experience for me. A couple of people on the prayer team who've been trained in, in healing prayer sit in a room with you and just kind of ask you questions, and it's just kind of this back and forth. Game. It was simple and peaceful, and for me, it was really a powerful experience. At one point, the question one of the uh, prayer partners asked me uh, was almost an, a project they told me to kind of do. They said, Scott, just imagine in your mind Jesus, and what does Jesus look like? So I closed my eyes, and I'm just kind of envisioning in my mind, what, what would it be like to just spend some time hanging out with Jesus, walking on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus? Um, what would it be like to walk through the streets of Jerusalem and go to the temple and worship with Jesus? And so my eyes are closed, I don't know how long, a couple of minutes, and then they ask me, Scott, is Jesus saying anything to you? And immediately, as soon as they asked the question, Jesus spoke to me. It wasn't this audible voice, but it was this thought in my head that I knew I didn't put there. It's not the kind of thing that I would think on my own. And so I nodded, but I also immediately teared up. And they asked, Scott, what is Jesus saying to you? They, they wanted me to voice it, to verbalize it, because there's power when we voice the truth of what Jesus is saying to us. But I just started crying harder and I could not speak. And, and it wasn't because I was crying that I couldn't speak. It was because there was a disconnect between what I... I wasn't confused what Jesus had said. I knew exactly what Jesus had said. I just wasn't sure I believed it. And so I just sat there for a couple of minutes, tears streaming down my face. And then finally they asked me again, Scott, what is Jesus saying to you? And this time I spoke it. Jesus said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are loved. Pretty simple, right? I mean, I've, I've known Jesus loved me since I was seven years old and sitting in the dining room with my mom praying a prayer, asking Jesus to come live in my heart. What's the big deal? What I'm telling you is in that moment, two months ago in a room just below where I'm standing right now, God's love penetrated to a place in my heart that I had never allowed God's love to reach before. And that's it. To know and to be known. Follow me, Jesus says. Know me. Know my love for you. That's the Christian life. It's not about all these things that we do. It's about understanding there's a God who loves us. And then that's what compels us to do all sorts of other things so that we can get to know this love in a deeper way in a life-changing way. Something's wrong. Make no mistake about it. Something's terribly wrong. We've forgotten how much God loves us. We, we don't know. We don't understand how much God loves the world. And so when things go wrong, we go around pointing our fingers and blaming everybody else for what's wrong in the world. It's time for us to remember God's perfect love casts out all fear. It's time for us to remember God's love pursues us no matter how far we run, no matter how often we try to hide. I wonder if you'd read this verse with me. Several thousands of years old from the prophet Jeremiah. These are the words of God to the people of Israel 
But through the power of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these are God's words to you and to me today. Read this out loud with me. I have loved you with a love that lasts forever. And so with unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. God says that, speaks that through the prophet Isaiah. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to my side. Not out of fear of the consequences, not as a transaction, but because of his great love. I hope you believe this. I hope you know this. I hope that you desire this more than anything, to know God's amazing love for you. For a lot of people in this room, this week marks the start of a new school year, and that can fill us with all sorts of thoughts and emotions. Uh, it's a new opportunity, it's new challenges, it's, it's new learnings and, and ways to do better and to be better and all, all sorts of good things. For a lot of you, the start of a new school year doesn't impact you really in any way anymore at all, but for a lot of us still, this time of year is one of those times where we kind of evaluate our life and, and think about doing things differently and fresh starts and that sort of thing. So we thought it'd be a really good way to kind of conclude the service just by praying for a little bit. So I've invited Brent Rao, our student ministry director, to come up, and Eli Sudarth, who is our discipleship minister. And we want to just take some time to pray for specific groups of people. And here's how we'll do it. Um, I'm going to pray for teachers and school board members and school administrators, anyone who's on staff in the school system in some way. Brent's going to pray for students, and Eli's going to pray for parents. And when we're praying for each particular group of people, we would love for you to stand up just so that uh, we can pray for you. So teachers, administrators, anyone on staff in a school in any way, um, would you go ahead and stand up now? School board members, uh, guidance counselors, whatever it might be. And let's all just kind of be in a posture of prayer for a while. So, Lord, we thank you for the way in which you call people to follow you. And, and there's all sorts of ways this happens. But you came, one of the ways you came was as an educator. Uh, Jesus is a master teacher. And so we thank you for calling these men and women into this ministry of education. And we ask, Lord, that they would be a, a powerful and positive influence uh, in the schools and in the districts and in the systems where they serve in this way. We pray for relationships between um, administrators and teachers. We pray for relationships between teachers and students that, that you would be in all of that, that uh, as excited and ready to go as, as people are, that you would also help them know when they fall, and they will sometimes over the course of the next nine months, that grace is for them, that grace is real, and that you can help them get back up and try again. And I ask, Lord, that sometimes when we're working with, with young people, we don't see the fruits of our labor. So I pray that you would cause former students to send them notes or to stop by and just say, thank you for being that influence in my life. We pray this all in Jesus' name. All right, you may be seated. Students, young, real young, to old, even in college or beyond, please stand. Let us pray for our students. Glorious God, we thank you so much for the ways in which uh, you remind us through the youngsters in our community that there is a joy that life brings, a joy that comes in the learning and the growing. And Lord, we know that 
each and every one of uh, these children of yours has been created on purpose with a purpose. We would pray that as they start this new school year that you would uh, remind them of that, that they don't have to be like anyone else. They can be exactly who you've created them to be, unique and wonderfully made. And Lord, we know that in this world in which we live in, in this time, that there are so many ways in which uh, students, and, and not just students, but, uh, but many people feel alone. So I pray for the students that may have that sense of loneliness in their life, that you would fill that void with uh, teachers and friends and coaches, mentors, uh, and of course, their parents that remind them that they are loved and they are cared for. And most importantly, Lord, that they know you are always with them. We pray that you would empower them and encourage them uh, no matter what it is that they're going through. But we also ask that you would fill them with a, a joy and a spirit of excitement and energy as they start a new year. If there's been hurt and pain in the past, we would ask that you would, uh, through your power of the Holy Spirit, remove that and let this be a new start, a fresh start especially for those students entering a new school, a new year and a new building, we would pray that you would help that become like their home for this school year, the place where they spend many, many hours. We pray that in that time they would create new relationships, that would be able to learn uh, and grow as students. But Lord, also we pray uh, outside of school that they would learn and grow in students of faith. Their relationship with you is very important and we pray that they would continually seek after you and find the confidence and the hope and the uh, encouragement that they need from you. Lord, And just it's great to uh, see how they succeed and uh, take part in so many different activities. We pray that everything that they are involved in, uh, in class, in school, in work, and everything beyond, Lord, that you would remind them that you've given them special gifts to use. And those gifts are not uh, just gifts uh, to be kept to themselves, but to be shared with others. So we pray that they would use their gifts to shine your light into the community in which we're in. And so we lift these students up to you right here, right now, and throughout the year ahead. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So now I'd like to invite parents to stand up, moms and dads. And even if you stood up because you were a teacher, uh, at the end of the school day, you take off that teacher hat and put your parent hat back on so you can stand up again. And we'd love to pray for you as, as mom or dad. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, so thankful that we're reminded today that you are our good and perfect father. Uh, that, that that is how you want us to know you, to relate to you as our Father. And so uh, I pray that, that as the school year begins, that these parents standing in this room would, uh, would look to you as their source of, of ultimate inspiration for what a parent is and does, but also as, as their good and perfect Father, as they're continually giving themselves to their children, to the students who are going back to school, that you would be pouring into them by the power of your Holy Spirit what they need to be parents. I pray for our moms and dads who work, uh, who, who go to work every day and work tirelessly to support their families, that when they get home uh, and they're tired and, and things have been stressful and hard, I pray that you would give them, again, strength to, to be mom and dad, uh, that you would give them what they need, God, so that they can continue to invest uh, in their young ones and help raise them up uh, and show them what way to go. Uh, I pray for uh, the, the different circumstances that are going on right now in our world that students are going to be uh, conflicted about and interested in and uh, struggle with. God, that you would give our parents uh, special wisdom and discernment for how to walk through these difficult circumstances and situations. 
um, that they may, th- may they, that they themselves may not know how to to deal with personally, but God, that you would help them with wisdom and guidance, uh, show their their children the way to go. I thank you for the the parents um, in our students' lives, God, who you know may not be parents in the conventional sense, but um, you know in my life, God, I'm grateful for the the people who were parents to me who weren't my mom and dad. Um, for coaches and librarians and school bus drivers and good neighbors and God, I think I'm, I'm grateful for them and I pray that you would help them this year too. Uh, for parents who are uh, saying goodbye to their their children uh, going off to college, God, I just pray for comfort uh, that you would help them um, by by speaking peacefully into their hearts, um, bringing healing, God, where there's hurt, uh, and letting that be a time of of new beginnings and restoration. Uh, and, and help us each other in this room, God, as our church, walk alongside each other as parents, but as also children who are called by you. So I thank you for, again, for, for your purpose, your place in our life, God, as our Father. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. We all be seated. I love looking around when the parents are standing up and seeing the parents of kids who are heading off to college wiping away tears and seeing the parents of preschool and elementary students wiping away tears of joy school starting back up praise the lord for everything there is a season right so we're going to sing one song for you as a song of blessing and a reminder where it is that uh, we stand we don't stand on how great our faith is We stand on how great our God is.
shouts of acclamation and take me home with joy shall fill my See you.